That'll just about do it. We can go home, right? Pretty good. Man, it's good to hear how God is on the move and what he's up to. And he's just a God that never stops working. Do you know that? He's just always at work. And I love that. And Kevin talked a little about it a little bit in his own life. But let me just say too, he touched on Alpha. We are a church that values questions. We value skepticism. As odd as that sounds, we value skepticism. We value asking hard questions and saying, how does this work? And why do you think this way? And that's why we do Alpha, because we want a space for that to happen. So, you know, if you find yourself a little skeptical, a little bit like, you know, this whole church culture thing is a bit much for me or wherever you're coming from, just know you're in the right place, okay? You're in the right place. So we value those things. Well, last week we started a series we're calling God With Us uh, about the incarnation, about the fact that God has taken on flesh, which is something we celebrate in this, this time of year. We think about it with Christmas, but often I think we find ourselves um, just sort of inoculated to that idea of how radical it is that we actually believe that God has come to live with us, that he is with us. And then it makes all the difference in the world. And so we, we, what I want to do, what I hope to do uh, last week, this week, and then on Christmas Eve is to spend a little time thinking about the very practical implications of that. The very practical implications of the fact that we believe that God has taken on flesh and, and hopefully in that to reestablish our sense of astonishment with that. You know, whenever you've heard something a lot, you, you tend to not be astonished by it, right? And so some of us have grown up in church, not all of us, but some of us have grown up in church. And so we've heard this a lot. And every Christmas season, we think about it in Advent and we think about Jesus coming. And, and I hope that every, I mean, really as your pastor, I hope that every December you find yourself again astonished with this news that God has come in the flesh in the form of Jesus. And not just that, but that he came as a baby, not as a grown man, as a helpless infant, right? And born to people of no reputation in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, just born into complete anonymity. And that this is the one who would be the king who would save all of humanity, who would come to him and receive the grace that he offers. And we think a lot about the astonishment that we have over the resurrection and the fact that, you know, that one would rise from the dead. But theologians have said, and I think it's true, that this is absolutely more astounding than the resurrection. Because if God has taken a body, if God has become human, then to believe that he could be raised from the dead is really not that big a deal. Right? As much as, don't ever tell anyone I said the resurrection is not a big deal. Right? It's clearly a big deal. But, to, but we can believe the resurrection that's not that hard if we can fathom that the God who lives outside of time and has no body and exists for all eternity past and into eternity future, that that God would become one of us. If we can fathom that, if we can ponder that, if we can say, yes, that has occurred, there's nothing else that we can't believe. Right? There's no derivative of that that is too difficult to, to fathom, to wrestle with, to believe. So we are, last week we talked about the effects of the incarnation. And again, I, I hope that you find this to be exceedingly day-to-day -day level practical. We talked about the effects of the incarnation, the implications of it for our loneliness. That if you find yourself lonely, you know, that the incarnation has something to say to that has something that absolutely it offers you in the midst of that loneliness. And I'm guessing that some of you in this season, loneliness tends to be a prevalent thing. The other thing that we're gonna talk about now today is what the incarnation says to us about our regret. Now, can I ask you a question? When I say the word regret, does something come to mind? 
I'm imagining something does. My guess is it's probably something to do with relationships. My guess is that somewhere, somehow, a relationship has been damaged. Something's been done. There's regret in your past. There's regret in my past. And, you know, there's different types of regret. There's regret that is from things that we do or don't do that harm someone else. Right? It's sort of the stuff that we've done with our words or the stuff that we've done with our actions that created really harm in the life of someone we care about. Uh, there's also the type of regret that is just from things that are outside of our control, right? The regret that, of things that have happened in our life, either mistakes that we made that were kind of innocent mistakes, they were never meant to harm, but we did them and they created then difficulty for others. And so we, we regret those things. There's the regret that comes from just things that happen that are outside of our control, the loss of a loved one, and we regret that they're no longer with us, perhaps, something along those lines. So there's so many different facets to regret. And what I want to offer you today is the fact that Jesus has been born. The fact that Jesus is God in the flesh is meant to give us a freedom from the regrets that we face. That this Christmas season, and my guess is, you know, you're thinking about, look, you're getting ready to probably, you know, darken the door of somebody's house this Christmas, right? You're going to walk in. And perhaps that environment is one that you recognize is filled with regret. It's a place where you know, like, I'm going to have to face that thing, that conversation, that that you know, relationship that I have damaged or I'm gonna have to walk into that environment. I don't, you know, and quite frankly, I'm expecting a fight. Quite frankly, I'm expecting that things will go south quickly. Quite frankly, I'm expecting that it will be an uncomfortable couple hours and then I will try and jettison that as fast as I can and move on. A lot of us have holiday seasons that are kind of like that sometimes. But I would say this, there's a different way that that can go. There's a different way that that can go. And if we begin to really understand what it means that God has come in the flesh, that along with some other things that like what Kevin was talking about of what has happened at the cross and the forgiveness that we can't outrun, we can't outsin God's grace, the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's quoting the end of Romans 8 there. The fact that those things are true are absolutely powerful and pivotal to cause us to experience something very different when it comes to regret. But what we want to focus in on and kind of, uh, if we can, almost with like laser focus is to ask, what difference does it make that God has come in the flesh? What difference does it make in terms of the regrets that I feel and experience right now, today, the things that I am wrestling with and maybe, perhaps, in this holiday season going to come face to face with? So, Let's talk about that a bit. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want to show you an interaction that Jesus has that I think teaches us a lot about regret. Let me give you a word of warning before I read this, right? If we're facing regret, big or small, right? It could be something small. It could be something big. If you're facing regret in this holiday season, we tend to fill up this month with a lot of noise and a lot of busyness. Would you agree with that? And we tend to fill it up with a lot of noise, a lot of busyness, a lot of light, a lot of flash. And because we do, I'm just gonna warn you against that temptation because if you're experiencing regret, the thing that you're probably prone to want to do is to, is to add more noise, to add more busyness so that you don't have to actually deal with the regret that you're facing. And the more noise, the more busyness, the less you, I mean, that's kind of how a lot of us deal with it. Would you agree with that? We're just like, if I just keep it, keep it rolling. If we just keep it rolling, or the family gets together, like, hey, presents, hey, meal, let's not make any space where we have to sit and actually have a conversation quietly with one another, because that's not gonna go well. 
And they just warn you against that. Uh, if, you, if you choose that, I mean, you will, it's like putting a Band-Aid over a broken femur, okay? You, the broken femur is not gonna get healed by that. But there's another way. So look at what Jesus does in John chapter eight. Starting in verse one, it says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now this they said, John inserts this little commentary, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, I imagine through sobs, wouldn't you? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Now, this story has a lot to teach us about regret because here's a woman caught in infidelity in a very difficult moment uh, who would be, I'm sure, uh, well, just back up a minute. We have to get the picture. We have to insert ourselves into the story. Can you do that? Can you insert yourself in the place of this woman? Caught in an act, dragged through the streets of your town, half naked, if not fully naked, brought into the most religious place you can imagine with all these holier-than-thou eyes staring at you and thrown down into the midst of a group of men and then you hear the words, we're supposed to stone her. What should we do? Curled up on the ground, fearful, afraid, I would imagine, filled with regret for a mistake made, for a sin committed. Then Jesus bends down. Just as if to say, like, just take, wait a minute. Wait, take a beat. He says, now we don't know what he writes on the ground. It's a great mystery, right? Don't spend too long trying to figure it out. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't know. He begins to write on the ground. And they keep badgering. Tell us what to do, right? They're counting on him to show mercy because if they want to test him, they must believe he's gonna show mercy and then they'll have him. Because the law says to stone her. The law also says to stone the man caught in the act of adultery. We have to wonder where he is. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care about the law. They just want to get Jesus to do something that they can condemn him for. So Jesus stands up as they badger him and badger him. They continue to ask him, you tell us, what should we do? They know he's gonna show mercy. They're counting on it. And that's why they know they'll have him. And then Jesus does something brilliant. And he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. It's telling that the older ones leave first 
They've got a longer list. They begin to understand what Jesus has done is he's turned the table and says, you think that she deserves to be stoned. You deserve to be stoned. And the irony of the question, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, is that there's one person in this story who has a right to throw a stone. He has every right to pick up a throne in his perfect righteousness and declare, all sin must be separated from me and it must be condemned. But Jesus won't do it. He doesn't do it. The visual image I always get when I read this story is that it's almost one, it doesn't say he did this in the, in the text, but almost one of him just completely surrounding her as if to say, if you're gonna throw stones at her, you're gonna hit me. And you know, the reason that Jesus can say without breaking the law, because the law does say that those who commit adultery should be put to death. It does say that. You might ask, well, how can Jesus get away with then saying let him, him who is without sin cast the first stone. What Jesus is doing when he's turning the tables on the Pharisees, he's saying, not only does she deserve to be stoned, so do you, and I will take the stones for you and for her. The reason Jesus can send them away and cause them to drop their stones is because he will, in very short order, be the one who is stoned for all of us in the form of a cross. In perfect fulfillment of the law, he lived in righteousness. But then he took the stones, he took the nails, he took the cross for us, which is why he can declare mercy. Mercy. Now, if we can insert ourselves into that story a little bit, I imagine we might have a few things we can learn about regret and how to deal with that and how this Jesus, this same Jesus who is God with us, who in this moment shows mercy to this woman and saves her life, offers us the same thing offers us a way to deal with regret so that it no longer has to crush us or sit over us. Here's the thing that I know, friends, is I spend a lot of time talking to a lot of folks about things that they've done, about things that have gone on in their past and things they regret. And the thing that I find again and again is that we, in theory, believe in grace, that I am forgiven because I've believed in Jesus and his blood has covered my sins and he has washed them away. But we hang on to regret like it's oxygen, we act as if we are gonna to continue to earn God's forgiveness by continuing to feel bad enough about the thing that we did back then. And we refuse to walk forward in a new way. We refuse to walk forward in the belief that we actually are forgiven and that things have changed. And I no longer have to cling to or be crushed by the regret that I feel for the thing that I did. And the simple truth is this. This is really the crux of everything I hope that you will get today. The fact that God has come to be with us means that you no longer have to be crushed by regret. You with me? The fact that God has come in the flesh means you no longer have to be crushed by regret. Jesus can take that from you. Now, the sort of obvious question then is, well, how? <laughs> how? Right? How does that happen? Well, in order to answer how does Jesus do that, we have to understand what is it that we need in order to, to not allow our regret to just crush us. And, and there's, I think, at least four things that are helpful to us today when we think about the connection of God with us in the form of Jesus and how we move past or uh, out from underneath the regret that we experience and feel for things done. Now, I wanna talk primarily about the regret that we experience for things that we've done or not done that have harmed someone else, uh, for sins in our life, things that we did, willfully did, 
that then caused harm and we regret those things. And I, do, I will at the end, we'll touch a little bit on the idea of what do you do with those regrets that are like the mistakes that we made that are not, they weren't intentional, uh, they weren't willful, they were just mistakes, kind of honest mistakes. Because those bring regrets too, right? Would you agree with that? I, I got a, you know, I got a ton of those. So let's talk about those four things, right? Here, here they are. Let me just list them and that way then we'll kind of know where we're going. This will be our roadmap, okay? The first one is this. I need the right kind of regret. Believe it or not, there's actually a wrong type of regret and a right type of regret. And in order to get out from underneath regret, you need the right type. We'll talk about that. The second thing is I need to know, I mean really know that I can be forgiven, that forgiveness is possible. The third thing is that I need the opportunity to move forward in a different way and make things right, right? It's, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to say, how do I actually move forward from this point in a way that I begin to bring healing to the thing that, that I did? And how do I move forward in a new way and not keep repeating that thing? The fourth thing is I need to know that when I make those innocent mistakes, that when I do those things that are slip-ups and they cause difficulty for others, for myself, that, that I have not sort of ruined my life once and for all, right? Have you ever made a mistake and thought, oh my goodness, like that was like probably the, that was the key moment, the Robert Frost poem moment, right? Like which, you know, two roads diverge in a wood and which one, and I chose the wrong one. Dang it, I'm in trouble now. Right, what am I gonna do? I chose the wrong job. I chose the wrong this. I chose the wrong that. Like, I, I, what did I do? What did I do? Right? We need the ability to not always be thinking back to, oh, if only I had. If only I had gone left instead of right. Right? And the incarnation has some things to tell us about that. So let's look at the first one. And uh, you can hold your spot in John 8, but the thing I want you to, I want you to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to look at that here just for a second. 2 Corinthians 9 and 10. So the first thing that we need to see as you're flipping, and we'll have them on the screen too. The first thing that you need to see is that there are different types of regret, as I said. There is regret for innocent mistakes. There's regret for things that we've done willfully. And we're gonna talk most about that second type. But within that second category, there are different motives for regret, okay? So now we're in that second category of things that I've willfully done that were wrong, that were sinful, and it's caused harm. And you can have two approaches or two motives behind the regret that you feel. The first is what we would call a selfish or a worldly motive, right? It would be essentially, I hate the consequences of the thing that I've done wrong, but I don't really hate what I did. I don't hate that I did that thing. I don't hate that thing. I don't hate that it caused harm to God. I don't hate that it caused harm to somebody else. I just hate the fact that I'm experiencing consequences for it. Have you been there? Right, this is what I would call like, you know, the seven-year-old version of regret where you're like, you know, like clean your room. No, I didn't clean my room. And therefore then I get punished. Well, I don't hate that I didn't clean my room. I just hate that I got punished for it, right? That's one type of regret. That's one type of motive for regret that we can experience. And that ultimately is a type of regret that leads to death. And I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. The other type of regret is that, is that I regret that the thing that I've done has harmed God, caused him to grieve and has grieved and harmed someone else. And that's what I really, that's what I regret. I regret that I've grieved the heart of God and in doing so, grieved the heart of another person. Do you see the difference between those two things? Like one actually can be a pathway forward, right? And the other 
ultimately is a very self-centered approach to regret and doesn't lead anywhere. This is what Paul is talking about. Let me show you what, what he says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, because he says this. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, or we could say a godly, repent, a godly regret, so that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So in other words, here's, here's the scenario. Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he'd written them a really tough letter. They had done something that wasn't right. And they'd done this thing and then Paul wrote them a pretty tough letter, essentially saying, stop doing that, right? Here's the result of that, you shouldn't do it anymore. And when he wrote that letter, he felt a little bit bad that he wrote it because he knew it was going to produce grief in them or regret in them. But he also knew that it was the way in which they might begin to walk in a different way. And so what he says here in these two verses is, ultimately, I'm not sorry I sent the letter to you that was harsh because it produced, and then he distinguishes between two things, worldly grief and godly grief. And he says that the letter produced godly grief in you. And that godly grief produced repentance and that repentance produces salvation. So in other words, what he's saying is, Corinthians, you experienced the right type of regret for the thing that you did. You experienced a type of regret that said, I have grieved the heart of God and therefore I am sorrowful that I have done this thing. Then he says, worldly grief is of no use. He basically says it produces not repentance leading to salvation, but it produces death. And well, why does it do that? And I think the key distinguishing mark that we can discern here in these verses between godly grief and worldly grief or godly regret and worldly regret is that worldly regret is really centered around me. What does it cost me? The thing that I'm, the mistake that I made, the thing that I did, what did it cost me? Versus godly grief, which ultimately humbles us before God and says, I'm grieved that I have grieved your heart. I'm regret that I have grieved your heart. Does the Distinction between the two makes sense, church. Okay, so what he's saying is you need godly regret, godly grief, not worldly grief. Because all worldly grief will do is reinforce that you're, that you're ultimately the most important thing and how something affects you is what matters most. And let me just tell you, if anyone's ever harmed you, do you can you tell when they are essentially sorry that they hurt you versus when they're sorry that they just are having to deal with the consequences of the thing they did? Can you tell the difference? You can, can't you? You can tell that it's ultimately like what's still at the center of their heart is them, not God. And that's really the difference. So then what does the incarnation offer us? And it's, I think this is so fantastic. I mean, I love this because here's what the incarnation offers you, right? The incarnation is the news that God has broken into the world. That God created it and didn't stay at a distance from it, but decided I will come and and insert myself into the world I created in order to save it, in order to make things right. So at the very least, what we can discern from that is that God has a plan and that plan is a big deal because it's such a big deal that he decided to enter into the world to execute that plan. Would you agree with that? If that is true and we ponder that truth, then does it make any sense to think in any way that I'm at the center of my life or at the center of this world in any way, shape or form? What the incarnation offers you is the freedom, the freedom that comes with believing that God is at the center of his own story, not you. Like 
When you talk about, let me just give you a little tip. When you talk about that you have come into a relationship with Jesus, could I encourage you not to use the language like that God, to, to not make yourself the hero of the story. As if like I made a great choice and like I was smart enough to see this thing called the gospel and understand it. Make God the hero of the story because guess who's the hero of the story? I was running from God. I had no clue. I was completely blind and God opened my eyes. Jesus is the center of this whole deal, right? Just for a second, kind of back up, get outside yourself for a second and just think about this reality for just a moment. We are declaring that the God who made the universe entered into the world. Now, who is the center of the story? Does you get how like only a lunatic would say, really, this is kind of all about me. I mean, really, at the end of the day, you're all here to kind of revolve around my, this is all about me. I'm the center of this whole, we're all revolving around me. We, we recognize that like, you gotta be kind of crazy to say that, right? When you recognize that God entered the world. But here's the gift of that. As you ponder the incarnation, you are pondering the reality that God is executing a grand narrative, a grand story. And he has entered the world to, to make it so. And that is one stop on the pathway towards experiencing godly regret rather than worldly regret because it helps you get out from the center of your own perceptions of how this world works and what it's all about. Do you see that? So the incarnation gives you that gift. Now here's the second thing that we wanna talk about that we need in order to deal with regret. And it's this, you need to know, and I need to know that I can be forgiven. And that's actually possible. And not the kind of conditional forgiveness that like, hey, as long as you behave going forward, then you're forgiven, right? We've all experienced that type of forgiveness. It's not really forgiveness. There's a forgiveness that says, I let go of the right to condemn you or to harm you. It's done, it's over. I'll never bring it up again. There's no need to continue. It's washed away. It's dealt with. The penalty has been paid. Whatever you've done, we need to know in order to move past regret, like I, I don't know any way to get past regrets in my past without believing that they are truly and sincerely forgiven by God. That's the first type of forgiveness I need. And it can lead to, doesn't guarantee always that I will be forgiven by people, but it can lead to that. But the first and greatest type of forgiveness I need is not actually forgiveness from the people I've harmed, but from the God that I've harmed. And when I have that, there's a possibility then of moving into forgiveness with people. We can't control the actions of another person and whether or not they'll forgive us. We can seek that forgiveness, we can ask for it, we can repent. We cannot control whether or not it's given in return. But we can be guaranteed that if we will turn to God and ask him for forgiveness, will he give it? Will he give it? I hope you know that. I hope it's burned deep in your heart. The only way past regret is knowing that we can be forgiven. If you, again, put yourself into the scenario of this woman in John chapter eight, and just if you can for a moment imagine the agony, the fear, the sense of condemnation, the overwhelming sense of guilt, if you can just begin to fathom that, you can begin to understand what it would have been like to be where she was 
And what did she need more than she needed anything else in that moment? She didn't need, she didn't need someone to say, it's no big deal, your sin's no big deal. She didn't need someone to just dismiss it. She needed someone to what? Forgive it. She needed someone to say, you were wrong, but it is forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing when he flips the script on the Pharisees and the scribes and points out that they indeed should have stones thrown at them as well. And the reason he can say that, as I said before, is because he will be the one to take the stones. That's the first thing he does in the story when he says that, like, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. The first thing he's doing is saying, I will be the one to take the stones. And you can, you can know, friends, look at me. You can know that thing that you regret if you have come to God and asked for forgiveness, you need to know, you need to know that it is forgiven. It's great news. I don't know how everyone else in your life has treated you. Perhaps they are unwilling to let it go. Perhaps they will not, will not forgive. I don't know, but what I do know is this, is if you've come to God, and in sincere repentance said, forgive me. And you've cried out to him and said, I have sinned, I need you. He has taken the stones for you. He has covered you, wrapped you up and allowed those stones to be thrown at him. The second thing he does, and I think it's just really helpful, at least it's helpful to my mind as I think about regrets that I face, is he lets this woman know that she's not alone in being someone who needs mercy. She's not alone, right? He says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone as if to say, guess what? And then when they all put the, do you think it felt pretty good when they all put the stones down and went away? That had to be a, a bit of a relief, right? Had to be a bit of a relief. And what they're acknowledging in that moment is I don't have a right to throw a stone, right? Which tells her, if you can put yourself in her shoes, she's thinking, Oh, so they need mercy too, right? I don't think it makes her go, oh, so my sin's no big deal, right? That, you wouldn't feel that, you wouldn't think that. All you would think is like, I'm not alone in being someone who needs forgiveness. And I find that incredibly helpful. In fact, that's kind of the point of this whole thing called church, right? It's not actually to come and just sit and listen to a preacher. It's not to come and sing some songs. It's, you know, it's not even, it's not to be like in a life group or to, you know, be in a fellowship group. It's, it's actually none of that. Those are all fine things. Those are good things, actually. But part of, I mean, one of the big reasons we do this is because we are a people who are constantly reminding one another, oh yeah, that person to your right, they needed mercy too. And that person to their right, they needed mercy too. And it should make it so that we're able to give mercy to one another, yes? Because it's just all of us, every single one of us, right? We're all in the same boat. We're all a people in need of mercy and friends, I've been kind of agonizing over this this week. Is I, words aren't sufficient to get across the depth of forgiveness that is offered to you. And if you would really grasp that you're forgiven, that that regret would begin to melt away. Like I know that I know that I know that that will happen. If you still are locked in regret, it's at least in part due to the fact that you don't believe you're actually forgiven. There's something in you that thinks you still have to earn that somehow or, or uh, you know, be good enough for a long enough period of time and then, then you'll feel forgiven. I mean, just tell you, there's never gonna be a long enough period of time. It's never gonna happen. You're not gonna feel bad enough for long enough ever 
to go, okay, now I'm free from that regret. That's not the way you get free from regret. You get free from those regrets when you repent and you say, God, I need your forgiveness. And you recognize that Jesus has come. Jesus has come. Now, here's how the incarnation gives us, gives us this assurance of, of that forgiveness can be available to us. Here's how it does it, right? Does it make any sense for God to send his son into the world if he doesn't want to forgive? Does it? What would be the point of that? Right, just, just logically, if I can appeal to, is it right brain or left brain? What's the more logical side? Left, awesome, we'll go with that. If I can appeal to that side of your mind for a second, right? If you just approach it that way, the recognition is like why, it, it is completely counterproductive to send the son into the world unless God is saying my default position, my default desire, the thing I want to do is not condemn. It is to show mercy. The thing I desire to give you is forgiveness. It is my great desire. Can you picture God saying that to you? I hope you can. He wants to forgive. The son has come. And it's the guarantee that I can know that God actually wants to do that. Because I'd be in trouble if I didn't know if God wanted to do that, right? So when you say, I need forgiveness. I don't know if God wants to give it or not. I hope. Cross my fingers. But the guarantee of the incarnation is that God has declared, look, I wouldn't have sent him if I didn't want to give it. You with me? All right, third thing we need in order to get out from underneath regret is we need to know that we have the opportunity to make things right. Now, I love this, opportunity to go forward in a new way. Because if you've dealt with regret, the thing you recognize is you don't just need to kind of know, okay, I'm forgiven. That's very freeing and that's really good. But you also feel this sense of like, but I need to go forward in a new way and I need to actually be actively participating with God in bringing healing to the thing that I hurt, right? Whenever you've hurt a relationship, whenever you've wounded someone, you, you don't just kind of want forgiveness and then, okay, now I'll stay over here kind of separate from that and I'll just, I'll hope the, the relationship gets healed. I'll just hope it gets healed. Right, no, you wanna actively participate with God in seeing health restored to that relationship. That's what you want and you sense you need that in order to actually get out from underneath regret. So you need not just forgiveness, you need also the ability to go forward in a new way. And I love what Jesus says at the end of this. Uh, he tells this woman, he gives her a command, right? What does he say? Does no one condemn you? She says, no one. He says, neither do I condemn you. So he says, what, what's he saying there? I forgive you, right? I don't condemn you, I forgive. And then he says, now what? Go and sin no more. Now that's a command. So he's clearly telling her, do something different than what you've done in the past. Don't keep doing this. Now we don't have a five-year checkup on this woman. Like there's nowhere later in the Bible where we say, like, oh, and here's what she did. We don't know, right? What we do know is that Jesus says, go and sin no more. And he's giving a command to live a different type of life. And he's given the power to do it by forgiving her and not condemning her and saving her. So what he is then saying is not just a command, but also an opportunity. That command represents, he's saying, you now have an ability to go forward in a new way because I've forgiven and saved you. And because I have done that, you can now live out of that and, and do something different than what you've done. You have an opportunity to go and make it right. 
Not in a way of earning forgiveness, because you can't earn it. If you earn it, it's not forgiveness. You cannot earn it, but once it's given, and then you can go forward in a way that, that participates with God in the healing of the thing that you caused harm to. Does that make sense? And you need that. And God is declaring that you have it in the incarnation. And the way that the incarnation reassures us of that is that, again, it's the thing we've been talking about last week and kind of this morning a bit too, is to say the news of the incarnation is not just that God wanted to legally justify a group of people so that they could get into heaven one day. The news of the incarnation is that God wanted to come and be with a group of people. He wanted to come and dwell among them and be near them. And in fact, cause his spirit to indwell them and live in them. And so what God is saying is the incarnation is the assurance that wherever you are in participating in the healing of the thing that you hurt in order to get out from underneath regret, I am with you in that, giving you new resources, new wisdom, new power, right? It's what Kevin was saying, not just that we carry our sin around on a leash and kind of like have it do tricks, right? That's a great illustration, by the way. I'm totally stealing that from now on. It's now mine. Ignore that he said it. Just kidding. But to actually put sin to death, that's possible. So in order to get out from underneath regret, what you need is not just the right kind of regret, right? Godly, not worldly. It's not just that you need to know that you know that you know that you can be forgiven for that thing. You also need to know that you can go forward in a way where you are participating with God in making it right in bringing healing to the thing that you harmed. And the last thing is this, the last thing we need. Now we're gonna talk about that different type of regret now, right? The type where you make a mistake and it's innocent. You didn't intend it, you just, you just did. You made the mistake and you feel sheepish and foolish and dumb and you do it, but you, you regret that. And the question is, well, how do I get past that? Right? Like I made that kind of mistake this week. I sent an email out and I meant to send it to one person and accidentally sent it to another one. You've been there and it had personal details about someone else that was asking me about some stuff. I felt horrible, just awful because it was, I didn't intend to do it. It was a mistake, but it was clearly sharing something about someone that I was intending to respond to with someone else that I was not intending to respond to. And that person did not need to get that information. Right, and so I'm, you know, I'm scrambling, I'm sending the email, like, please disregard that, I'm so sorry, that was meant for somebody else. I'm sending the email out, I'm, I'm connecting with the person who I meant to send, I'm so, I'm so sorry I sent this. And everybody was gracious. Everybody said, hey, innocent mistake, totally get it. Grace, man, grace. So everyone was really gracious and kind, which is very comforting. But don't you feel stupid when you do that kind of stuff? You just feel awful. And you're like, oh, I've messed up so bad. And it costs somebody, uh, you just hate it. You just hate it, right? So how do I... How do I get out from my way? And not just those kind of mistakes. Like that's not a life altering, at least not for me, right? Not a life altering mistake. It's, but there are those moments like, oh, I, what if I chose the wrong school? Or, oh, what if I chose the wrong job? Or, oh, you know, the moments that it's the Robert Frost poem, like two roads diverged in a wood. And what if I went the wrong way? And now nothing will ever be the same again. And, oh man, I just wish I had to go back. And so, what do you do with that? Like, how do you get past those kinds of regrets? And it's the, really the last word I want to share with you. It's from Isaiah chapter nine, because it's so good to speak to us about this. So we'll put it up on the screens. Isaiah chapter nine, talking about hundreds of years before Jesus would come, talking about who he would be. 
Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, it says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What Isaiah has just said is the child who will come, the one who will rescue, the one who will be God with us, is coming to establish a kingdom over which he will govern and he will bring about perfect peace and he will execute justice and righteousness. Now that's great news because this is not just about you and me individually being saved and reconciled to God. This is about God making everything right. That's what he's declaring. The incarnation is about God entering the world and saying, I'm gonna make it all right. I'm gonna change it all. The whole thing's getting flipped upside down. We're gonna bring a whole new thing here. Now, in the same way that we said that the incarnation and the reminder that God has entered the world, therefore God has this massive cosmic sized plan that he is working out. And that, and that part of what that tells me is like, I'm not at the center of this thing. And it humbles me enough to have the right kind of regret Right In the same way, this, the cosmic nature and profound power of his plan to guarantee, Isaiah is saying, that he will bring about perfect peace, that he will execute justice and righteousness. Can my mistakes, choosing the wrong path, right? Can my sending, hit and send when I shouldn't have hit send, can I undo God's cosmic plan to bring about justice and righteousness in the world? Can I do that? No, and I'm not at the center of the plan, but I am a part of the plan. And God knew every one of my days before they came to pass. And because that's true, the incarnation is the declaration that I cannot, due to my mistakes, undo God's plan for how he will utilize my life to build his kingdom of perfect peace in the world. I can't do it. I'll tell you, you need to know that because you're gonna make a lot of slip ups. You're gonna make a lot of mistakes. You're gonna hit send on that email just like I did and do other things that you're gonna wish you hadn't done and they're gonna be innocent mistakes. You didn't intend them. You didn't mean to harm. You're gonna need to go forward and do the right thing and say, hey, I did this. I'm sorry, own it, you know, and kind of move forward to try and bring, you know, try and rectify it where you can. But at the end of the day, you will be overwhelmed by regret unless you believe that God is sovereignly working out the execution of his kingdom. That this child who was born is wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. And the government is not upon your shoulders, it's upon his. He is working out a cosmically big plan to redeem the world. And your mistakes will not undo that. I hope that comforts you. I hope that comforts you. Let's pray and then let's sing together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We do thank you that you have come to free us from sin and shame and guilt. And I would pray today specifically for those who are wrestling with that, who feel underneath a pile of regret, that they would feel your freedom offered to them, that they would know that it's true, that they would see in your word that you declare it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would receive our praises now as we offer them to you as the one who has freed us, as the one who has sheltered us, who took the stones for us. We deserve them, you took them, and you have set us free. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.